be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. A degenerate who had grandiose aspirations to become a man of importance and stature was nothing more than a self-absorbed two-bit criminal who graduated to murder. His crimes would take years to uncover and resulted in one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in 20th century England. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Gorder. And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody? And welcome back to another devious episode of Criminal AF. Devious. <laughs> Once again, I'm Dave Jari. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corner. How we doing? How we doing? Hey, Garrett. Yep. Yeah, we have a new member to our criminal family. Put him on the Patreon. That's right. Put him on the Patreon. I like it. I love it. Brooke Morgan. Welcome, and thank you so much for your generous support. Also, a huge shout-out to Christine Rivera. Christine has been a longtime supporter of us, and she has recently upgraded to our Zodiac tier. Our very first Zodiac, the highest tier we have. That means she gets to come on the show. Oh, yeah. And hang out with us for a little bit, yeah. right? Oh. Yeah, I, I, I touched base with her, and she's going to let us know when she's, when she's ready to do that. Joining Christine in the Zodiac tier is Dusty J. Hicks. Thank you so much. You are all awesome. Now, you can become a criminal as well by joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash criminal AF or click on the link in episode description. So we got some uh, big news to announce. Garrett and I are now officially business owners. Criminal AF LLC. That's it. We can no longer consider this a hobby. Now, I'm excited to see where this will take us. And we can only thank our amazing listeners and supporters for encouraging and enabling us to take this step. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Now, for those of you joining us for the first time, this is a true crime podcast. There will be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt your nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language. Like fuck? <laughs> <laughs> we understand that Cripple AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen, and if it's not for you, hey... Thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the, the debauchery. How are you doing, Dave? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good? Doing yep. good? So as we always do, let's get right into the Florida man of the day. All right. The headline. Yes. Florida women charged pulling gun on victims she thought were cutting in the gas line. Oh, shit. A Florida woman landed behind bars after pointing a gun at victims that she thought was cutting that were cutting in the gas line. 59-year-old Terry Lynn Johns. Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a Florida name for you. Right? <laughs> Terry Lynn! Terry <laughs> Lynn. Was arrested and charged at a gas station in Lee County, which is an area that was the hardest hit by Hurricane Ian. She is currently sitting in Lee County Jail after she was arrested for pointing a gun at a car with two women who she felt were trying to skip the line to get gas. Those bitches. But deputies say the female victims were simply trying to make a U-turn in congested traffic. Sure they were. These are behaviors that were will not be tolerated at any time, much less during the state of emergency, said LCSO. She was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and displaying a firearm during a fe- uh, during a felony. Now, hear me out. Hear me out. Hear okay. me out. Let's do this one. I get what she did was bad. Yeah. But in times of panic and like, I I can okay. see it. If she's she's trying to get gas, and you know, once that gas station dries up, it's going to be a pain in the ass to find. Oh, she yeah. was she was out there patrolling. She was making sure everybody followed the rules. She was like, she was like the the warlord that after the apocalypse, like, just starts taking over a whole town. She was a line monitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just waving her gun around. Yeah. Get back in line, motherfucker! I mean, Ian was scary. You, everybody's probably yeah. saw the 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 videos from it. It's it's it was crazy. Oh yeah, there was a lot of towns that got fucked up. I wonder if the final countdown was blasting in the background. It's the final countdown. Do, 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 do. Yeah, instead of the, the hurricane sirens, yeah. the whoop, it's just the final countdown. That would actually make it a little bit more. Nah, I, uh, I would rather have it like that. Guns than, blazing. Than the ominous. Uh, you think if you live in Florida, would you hang out at your house? Would you bunker down, board up the walls, and just just sit with your water and your your non-perishables and <laughs> sit out the hurricane? Or would you evacuate? I'd put my lawn chair out in the front. I feel like I would. Like, Bring it on, motherfucker! Yeah, it, it, it depends on my my water level. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, I would. 
See, like here, like in Connecticut, we don't. I mean, we get a hurricane every every so often. Yeah, but we always. We, it's always the tail end. But it, yeah, but it's always like well, Hurricane Sandy kind of fucked us up pretty. Yeah, good. that's just. But it's it's rare. It's rare that we get a, a hurricane that that's that bad. But we do get blizzards, and you know everybody snowed in for. A couple know, days. A couple days here and there. Yeah, but it's not like your house isn't getting ripped off. Tonight. Right. But I'm just saying, you know, I mean, like, everybody's freaking out. Like, oh, my God. Everybody's r- rushing to the store, getting gas. Gas stations are, like, yep. empty. Milk, bread, everything's gone. And I'm just, like, chilling with my fucking Pop-Tarts. I hope Domino's is open. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope they're delivering right now. But you know what never fails? No matter what it is, blizzard, hurricane, Christmas day, you know. Yep. Dunkin' Donuts is always. Oh yeah, open. there'll be some guy who crazy oh, yeah. ass dude. Who, I bet you I there was. A, I bet you there was a Dunkin' open in the middle of hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> I will travel no shit in a blizzard to get my Dunkin'. Oh for sure. No, but no I, that's a northeast thing though. Yeah, that's a hundred percent a northeast thing. Yeah, gotta get my coffee. Yeah, that's that's a a true northeaster will literally drive through two feet of snow to go <laughs> get a goddamn Dunkin' Donuts okay, coffee. I'll, I'll put my snowshoes on. I'll yeah. trudge through. Where you going? Where you going? I don't even care if I can't drive. I'm walking a Dunkin'. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> I'm going to need my coffee. <laughs> I'm going to go Dunkin' Donuts, man. Everybody makes fun of me because I say, say coffee. I'm going to say it like I normally, but I almost, I almost said it like you do just because <laughs> you, like, I know that you say it. Coffee. Cough, coffee? Coffee. Co- coffee. Not coffee. 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 It's coffee. No. That's what are you? Coffee, yeah. it's coffee. Come on, hey, hey, pour me some coffee. So you're you're bunkering down? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm chilling. I don't know, man. No, I think maybe because I have two young young ones that I would be like, all right, I'm gonna get at it. Like especially if you live underneath that water table, like. Well, they had that one video or, or I've seen where... some crazy videos yeah. on, on TikTok too. Like the woman who was in a in a in a raft inside her living room. <laughs> she's like, well, it's all yeah. over. <laughs> and she's just like floating around in her raft. That would be me. I would. No way. Nope, I'm staying. Then what? Then you just grab the paddle and then you go expect the neighborhood after, yeah, right? You just yeah. paddle out of your out of your front. <laughs> <laughs> nope, gotta go to work. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> gotta get the Duncan. <laughs> I, I I like to say that I would probably get out, but I am that type of person. That's like, eh. Yeah. Let's just. I mean, where are you gonna go? It'll be fine. Yeah. In a hotel somewhere. <laughs> somewhere inland. I don't know. <laughs> All the people on t- in Tampa and Naples just yeah. washed away. Yeah. Oh, I remember we, uh, we had uh, when I was younger. We had Hurricane Gloria come through Connecticut, and prior to Hurricane Sandy, it was our worst hurricane to date. Mm-hmm. And there's fucking trees falling everywhere, shingles flying off houses, windows being smashed, and me and my brothers were outside playing in the streets, just fucking woohoo! Hurricane, what what? <laughs> hurricane party as a shingle flies by. Yeah, fucking almost takes off your throat. <laughs> almost takes off your leg. <laughs> oh man! All right, so we're gonna take a wild ride, folks. This story is tragic and infuriating, and it's based on two men accused of killing the same person, but only one is guilty. Let's get to it with chapter one. It sounds like a little detective story. Yeah. Twenty-two-year-old Timothy Evans married Beryl Thornley, barely 18 years old, on September 20th, 1947, after dating for the previous nine months. Timothy's life up to this point was nowhere near perfect. Born November 20th, 1924, in Martha Tidville, Wales, Timothy had a rough start. His father had abandoned the family in April of that year, leaving his mother, Thomasina, with a three-year-old daughter and a baby on the way. Timothy had difficulty learning to speak and, as a young child, developed a severe, blistering rash on his feet that made it nearly impossible to walk, preventing him from attending school for long periods of time. This resulted in Timothy being underdeveloped in his speech, social skills, and education, never fully learning how to read or write. The rash would never completely heal, so he would walk with a noticeable limp well into his adult life. In 1933, Timothy's mother would remarry and welcome a younger sister. The family would move to London in 1935, but Timothy returned to Mirtha Tidville for a short period of time to work in the coal mines until he had quit because of his feet. He returned to London in 1939 to live again with his mother. Timothy was known as a strange fellow. 
for years he would come up with fantastic stories of his achievements and accomplishments, knowing full well none of this was true, as did the people who would be on the receiving end of these stories. Timothy would occasionally have run-ins with the law, most notably for stealing a car. He developed a drinking habit that would often cause him to become violent. In 1947, he went on a blind date with a young woman named Beryl Thornley. They would marry in September of that year and reside with Timothy's mother on St. Mark's Road in Notting Hill. In 1948, Beryl learned she was pregnant, so the young Evans family would move a short distance away to the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in the Ladbrook Grove neighborhood of Notting Hill. They shared the residence with an elderly gentleman who was hospitalized for most of the time living in a middle flat, and a middle-aged couple living on the ground floor flat. Life at Rillington Place was very difficult for Timothy and Beryl. It became harder once their daughter, Geraldine, was born on October 10, 1948. Financial difficulties were always at the root of their problems, along with Timothy's drinking, which would increase from all the stress of raising a family on little income. Arguments would become prevalent between the two, and Timothy would become physical with Beryl, witnessed by neighbors on numerous occasions. Just when things couldn't possibly become worse, in 1949, Beryl told Timothy that she was again pregnant. Knowing that they could not afford bringing another child into their family, Beryl told Timothy that she wanted an abortion, which was illegal at the time. Weeks had gone by since Timothy's mother had seen Timothy, Beryl, or Geraldine. Thomasina was very close with Beryl, and a day would rarely pass without the two of them communicating. The last thing Thomasina was told by Timothy was that Beryl and Geraldine had left London to visit her father in Brighton. By November of 1949, Thomasina had learned that Timothy had left London as well, returning to Mirtha Tidville to stay with an aunt and uncle. On November 30th, 1949, the aunt received a letter from Thomasina inquiring about the whereabouts of Timothy, Beryl, and Geraldine, and the aunt approached Timothy with the letter. Timothy left the home, walked to the Mirtha Tidville police station, and approached the officer on duty. I have disposed of my wife, Timothy told the officer. Confused, the officer asked what he meant by that. Timothy responded with, I have put her down the drain. Speaking with detectives, Timothy explained that his wife had become pregnant and wanted an abortion. He stated that on November 7th, he went to the local cafe to meet a man who gave him pills that would abort the fetus, which he gave to Beryl. When he returned from work the next day, he found Beryl dead. He panicked and disposed of her body in a drain outside of their flat. He brought baby Geraldine to an unnamed family and left for Martha Tidville. The police contacted London authorities, who inspected the drains outside of the home, but found nothing, noting that it took three men to lift the drain cover, making it impossible for one man, especially someone like Timothy, to lift the cover themselves. When confronted with this information, Timothy changed his story. He now stated that the neighbor on the first floor flat performed a fatal abortion on Beryl, and he is the one who disposed of her body while Timothy was at work. The neighbor then told Timothy that he sent Geraldine to an unnamed family in East Acton and that Timothy should leave town until everything blew over. Scared, Timothy did as he was told. On December 2nd, London police searched 10 Rillington Place for evidence into the disappearance of Beryl and Geraldine. They spoke to the ground floor neighbor and his wife, who both said that Timothy and Beryl would fight constantly, often physical and Timothy became overly stressed when he found out about Beryl's pregnancy. Police searched the outdoor wash house, and behind a stack of boards, police found the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine, wrapped in a green tablecloth from the Evans' home. They were both strangled to death, and Beryl showed no signs of an attempted abortion. Presented with this evidence, Timothy changed his confession a third time, now stating that he and Beryl got into an argument over money. Enraged, he strangled Beryl with a piece of rope and strangled Geraldine the following day. He placed both of their bodies in the wash house and fled to Mirtha Tidville. Immediately after his arrest, Timothy publicly retracted his confessions and again placed blame on the downstairs neighbor, 
stating that he had no idea that Geraldine had been killed until the police found the baby in the wash house. Timothy Evans' trial began in January of 1950. The star witness was the ground floor neighbor, who stated under oath that he had witnessed Timothy physically assault Beryl on numerous occasions, and on the night of November 8th, the last day Beryl and Geraldine were seen alive, he heard them arguing, then heard a loud thud and the fighting had stopped. Timothy took the stand in his own defense, the only defense witness to be called, and again said he was innocent of the murders. Asked why he would confess to such a horrific crime, Timothy stated that he was so distraught over finding out his daughter was killed, he didn't care what happened to him. The trial lasted only three days, and Timothy Evans was found guilty and sentenced to death after the jury deliberated for only 40 minutes. On March 9, 1950, after a failed appeal, Timothy Evans was hanged in Pentonville Prison. Many rejoiced that Timothy was dead, but what they didn't realize at the time was that the Crown may have just killed an innocent man. So as we pointed out in the story, Timothy Evans didn't receive a very good education. He was in and out of school during his developmental years because of the uh, infection. Um, he really didn't learn how to read or write. Now, it's said that he had an IQ of 70, which is the lowest score for borderline to mild retardation on the Weschler score of intelligence. Now, what stands out throughout all of his confessions is that he did not once write anything down because he can't write. Holy. It was uh, it was all the investigators who, who did all the writing, and the final co- confession that was used in the court was written by the investigators and read to Timothy prior to his signature. So the investigators could have literally written anything, and Timothy would have signed it. Were these confessions true? I mean, I, I, can, I can understand the first confession because he's... Well, we'll go into it. We'll go into it later. I don't want to go too much into that. But it's also important to point out that Timothy wasn't on trial for the murder of his wife. There were too many variables to consider, which uh, could have resulted in a conviction of manslaughter. And the Crown didn't want manslaughter. They wanted murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the police at that time are going to, hey, sign this. Uh, sign this. This is what you said, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't want to risk that. And, you know, they wanted him hanged. So he was only brought up, brought to trial for the murder of Geraldine, his infant daughter. Now, this will become important later on in the story. It's I, whenever I hear people say, like, "Oh, I wish I could go back to those days," and I'm like, no, you, why? You, you, this poor boy, this, he has an infection. He's out of school. He never gets the schooling he wants. He probably ended up having to go to work at twelve. Like mo- modern, day, modern day medicine, and this would that would never happen um, in today's world. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how people lived back then. We were just we were savages. <laughs> we were savages back then. Pretty much, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> we were, oh man. Um. On top of it, too, this this story is it, I find it so funny because like it, you know, we don't know if the the police switched the statements at this point. We don't know, you know. It, it's it sounds like a game of Clue. It's like he yeah. did it in the back alley with a candlestick or yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now the wash house in the back, uh, it's going to become one of the most important subjects in this trial. Yet it was severely overlooked. Uh, one fact was not brought up in Evans's trial is that two workmen were willing to testify that there were no bodies in the in the wash house when they worked there for several days after Evans supposedly hid them. Okay, they stored their tools in the wash house, which is a like a small outhouse, measures by 54 by 52 inches or 1400 by 1300 millimeters, and uh, they cleaned it out completely when they finished their work on November 11th. Now their evidence in itself would have raised doubts about Evans's uh, alleged confessions. Now the second thing is that the that the first floor neighbor's wife testified that she has u- she had used the sink in the washroom every single day and didn't notice anything out of the ordinary or smell anything odd. In fact, her d- family the family dog was with her during these times and he never alerted her to anything strange, you know. Yeah. A dog obviously have stronger scent than we do. He probably would, you know, he would have been digging around looking for something. It's funny because the the most he says the most British thing I've ever heard in my life. It's it's probably the most proper way of saying you killed somebody. I have disposed of my wife. Yeah. Right? 
What a what a way to say, tell somebody that you killed them. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the third thing is that the boards that were covering the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine were not there prior to their discovery. The boards in question were given to the first floor neighbor upon completion of the work to the wash house at his request. Mm. Okay. So that was never brought to trial. Now, this neighbor, as we read in the story, is the Crown's primary witness. Yeah. So the workmen were not called to give evidence, but the police re-interviewed the workmen and forced them to change their evidence to fit the preconceived idea that Evans was the sole murderer. This is wild. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of different things that that could have went wrong here. So the the real murderer would have had to hide the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine in a separate location and then move them to the wash house Mm -hmm. four days later when the workmen had completed their job. Well, for sure. So, and at this point, Evans can pretty much prove that he was nowhere. He had already left town by that point. Now, you know, I'm not saying that Timothy Evans was an upstanding individual, you know. He was a heavy drinker. He would physically assault his wife. But as bad as those things are, it doesn't deserve the sentence that he received. And it doesn't excuse him from having a strong defense for murder. Basically, even his own defense attorneys were, you know, this guy used to beat his wife. He's a fucking alcoholic. He's yeah, They weren't helping him at all. Have an IQ of 70. You know, he can't read or write. You know, this guy's, yeah, they're just like, whatever. We'll go into who was the true culprit in the murders of Beryl and Geraldine in the next chapter. Three years after the execution of Timothy Evans, in March of 1953, a new resident at 10 Rillington Place, Beresford Brown, had asked the landlord if he could use the kitchen in the recently vacated ground floor flat, to which the landlord agreed. Brown entered the flat, and as he was hanging shelving in the kitchen, he found that a section of the wall was hollow, merely covered with wallpaper. He tore back the wallpaper to reveal a small pantry, and within this pantry were the bodies of three women. Police were quickly notified and began a more thorough search of the property than the one conducted a little over three years earlier for Timothy Evans. In the garden, they found two more bodies. Tearing back the floorboards of the flat, another body was found. In all, six bodies were found during the search and if police would have done a more thorough search when investigating Evans, they could have easily found the two bodies in the garden, as there was a human thigh bone used to prop up a fence. The man who they now believed was responsible for all of these murders was also the Crown's primary witness used to convict and hang Timothy Evans, John Reginald Halliday Christie. John Christie was born April 8, 1899, in Northeram in Yorkshire, the sixth of seven children. John had a tumultuous relationship with the rest of his family. His father, who had become abusive with his children over trivial offenses, and Christie's mother and older sisters were controlling, overprotective, and would play mind games with him, one minute coddling him, and the next bullying him incessantly. His mother would also emasculate him and treat him as if he were weak. Because of this, Christie would grow into a man who would be a control-obsessed hypochondriac who was unable to perform sexually unless he had absolute control over a woman. Known as a bright teenager who excelled in mathematics and history, he quit school by the age of 15 and began work in a movie theater as a projectionist. When Christie was of age, he enlisted in the British Army during World War I and served as a signalman prior to being involved in a mustard gas attack in June of 1918, which he claimed left him temporarily blind and a mute for three years, but those close to him believed it was just a call for attention. By the age of 19, after spending his previous years impotent and unable to have a healthy sexual relationship, he found that the only way he could maintain an erection was if he was with a prostitute, where he could act on his deviances and rape fantasies. He would frequent prostitutes often and would continue to do so after he met his future wife, 
Ethel Waddington. Christy and Ethel moved to Sheffield after their marriage. His impotence would play a major role throughout their early years, as he could not bring himself to assert his sexual control over Ethel, as he did with the prostitutes. Early in their marriage, Christy got a job working for the postmaster. He was arrested for stealing mail and was sent to prison for three months. Shortly after returning home, he was put on probation for charges of violence. Word was spreading that Christie was frequenting prostitutes. He left Ethel and moved to London. Ethel stayed behind in Sheffield and began work as a typist. Four years after he left, Christie found himself in prison again for nine months after being convicted of two thefts. Upon release, Christie worked a series of menial jobs and moved in with a prostitute and would become violent with her. In one altercation, Christie hit the woman over the head with a cricket bat, who was sent back to prison for six months. He was later accused of violence against another woman, but there wasn't sufficient evidence to charge him. A few years later, he was arrested again for stealing a car from a priest who was helping him. His life was spiraling out of control, and there was only one person who he felt could make things right. He got in contact with Ethel and asked her to move to London. Reluctantly, she agreed, not knowing what type of man her husband had become. After nearly ten years of separation, Christie and Ethel were joined again in 1933. In the late 1930s, with World War II just about to break out, Christie applied to become a volunteer for the War Reserve Police. He was accepted, without any look into his previous background, and was stationed as a special constable for Harrow Road Police. He took this appointment very seriously, maybe too seriously, as he earned a nickname, the Himmler of Rillington Place. He used this position in uniform to follow women, and he bored a peephole in his flat to keep an eye on his neighbors. These were the best four years of Christie's life, and took advantage of the authority he was given, as well as the frequent trips Ethel would take to visit relatives. Christie used these times to find women who would respond to his station as a constable, and in 1943, began a relationship with a woman he worked with at the police station. Her husband was away at war, and Christie took advantage of this opportunity. With Christie in a full-on relationship with this woman, her husband returned home from war to find Christie in his house. The husband severely beat Christie and threw him out on the street. It was because of this, Christie began inviting women back to his own home. It was here where three women and a baby were soon to meet their fate. March 24, 1911, Christie's grandfather, David Halliday, he died at age 75 in Christie's house after a long illness. Christie later said that seeing his grandfather's body laid out on a trestle table gave him a feeling of pleasure at the lack of tension he now felt. A man that he once feared was now only a corpse. After this, Christie was fascinated with death and would explore cemeteries and found a broken vault that housed children's coffins. And The control aspect totally makes sense there of why he got so infatuated by that. Seeing the one man that controlled you just lifeless on the, yeah. on the probably turned him on in now some way. Now who's controlling who? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So, he would go to this vault. He'd peep through the cracks at the exposed children's coffins and stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. So, by the time he reached puberty... He already associated sex with death, dominance, and violent aggression, rendering him impotent unless he was in complete control. His first attempts at sex were failures, branding him as Reggie No Dick and Can't Do It Christie throughout his adolescence. <laughs> Horrible nickname. <thing>. Yeah. <laughs> Reggie No Dick. <laughs> Can't Do It Christie. Uh, he was also a hypochondriac and a hysteric, and often exaggerated or feigned illness as a ploy to get attention. Now, he loved power and control, and when he was younger, he was a Boy Scout. He actually, like, thought, because of his uniform, that he could control boss other people around and stuff, which led to a couple scuffles here and there, but we can fast forward it to when he was older. Yeah. When he became a constable during World War II. Yeah, the, the worst position that guy could ever I know. hold. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they're saying that it went so far to his head that 
chase, he was ch- literally chasing people for like jaywalking and yeah. like all this other kind. Of, like, bro, you're a volunteer. You you yeah. you know what I mean? You have no arresting power. You're volunteer just, sheriff's <laughs> deputy. <Yeah. laughs> Shout out to the office, Dwight Schrute. Oh yeah. <laughs> but you know, there was another thing, and uh, he used his uh, uniform for uh, little. Get, you know, little, get with the ladies. Skit, skit. Um, and I feel so. This poor guy, the the husband of that one female, uh, is fighting in World War Two the whole oh, yeah. time, and yeah. then comes home and finds this asshole right. in his Renaissance cop uniform. Beat the fuck out of him. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I didn't include it in the story, but they ended up getting divorced. Yeah, he he's the security guard that wears like a full tack vest. <laughs> What's that strap? Got like a bulletproof vest at Paul all times. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Blart. Doing, I'm ready to go. Doing somersaults. I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, Himmler. Himmler. What is him? a uh, Himmler? Himmler was... Uh, I know who Himmler was, but yeah. why, why was he called the Himmler of... Because he wouldn't let anybody do anything. Oh, okay. I thought I thought they like, were that was a British word or something like that. No, that they were saying like he was controlling her. He so they're saying he's like Himmler right, from Germany. Gotcha. Right, okay. Yes. I was I was confused there. I was like, what? I yes. didn't know if that was a British word that they were using. Oh yeah, he was drilling like peepholes so he could spy on his neighbors yeah. to make sure they weren't like breaking the law. <laughs> Fucking crazy. Fucking weirdo. So now we're gonna get into the progression of Christy the small time convict to Christy the murderer in chapter three. In August of 1943, Christie met a woman in a bar named Ruth First. Ruth was a lively young woman, 21, tall and had dark brown eyes and hair. She had a job at the munitions factory and lived not far from Christie. It is said that Ruth also worked part-time as a prostitute when she needed the money. Ruth would spend time at Christie's house while Ethel was away visiting family. But for Ruth, she would value their relationship more than Christie would. One day, while Christy and Ruth were spending time together, Christy received a letter from Ethel that she would be home the following day. Ruth didn't want to leave, and she undressed, begging Christy to run away with her. The two began to have sex, and Christy put his hands around Ruth's neck. He began squeezing harder and harder, thrusting away as Ruth lost consciousness and died. There was no way Christy would run off with this woman, so he killed her, as she now became a liability. He wrapped her in her coat and placed her under the floorboards with her clothes. Ethel and her brother returned the following day, not suspecting a thing. Her brother stayed the night and left the next day, and Ethel returned to work. Christy used this time to move Ruth's body from under the floorboards to the wash house in the back. He began digging a hole in the garden when Ethel returned, saying he was just trying to tidy up the garden. He joined her for tea and returned to digging once Ethel went to bed. Christy moved Ruth's body one final time and buried her in the hole. In 1944, Christy began a new job at Ultra Radio Works and befriended a 32-year-old woman named Muriel Eady. Muriel lived with her aunt and had a steady boyfriend. Christy would invite Muriel and her boyfriend over for tea with he and Ethel on several occasions, and the four also attended the movie theater. In October of 1944, Ethel again left to visit relatives and Christy thought of a plan to lure Muriel to his home. Muriel suffered from severe congestion of her nose and throat, and Christy, claiming to have medical experience from his time as a constable, invited her over for a remedy. He told Muriel that he created a special type of inhaler that would clear her sinuses. He held a tube up to Muriel's nose and mouth and placed a towel over her head. He told Muriel to breathe in deeply, and she may experience a little dizziness. As she inhaled... She was breathing in carbon monoxide. Muriel became very weak, and Christy took this opportunity to rape her as he choked her with her own stockings. Christy moved her body to the wash house as he dug a hole in the garden next to Ruth's first body. He placed Muriel fully clothed in the hole and buried her. Some time had passed, and as Christy was working in the garden, he dug up a femur bone and used it to prop up a trellis. In 1948, the Christies welcomed new neighbors to 10 Millington Place, Timothy and Beryl Evans. They had been married less than a year and were expecting a baby. 
Timothy's sister, Eileen, had found the flat for them and helped them move in and decorate. One day after moving in, Eileen was alone in the flat when John Christie silently entered and startled her. He brought her a cup of tea, which she kindly refused. Christie just stood there, holding the cup of tea, staring blankly at Eileen. Finally, she broke the awkward silence by claiming that Timothy was due home for any minute, and Christie had left the flat as suddenly as he arrived. As stated, Timothy and Beryl's marriage was fraught with arguing and at times physical attacks, and once Geraldine was born, these seemed to escalate. Timothy was illiterate, didn't earn enough money to provide for his family, and had a drinking problem. It didn't help that Timothy may have had a brief affair with Beryl's friend, Lucy, who had come to live with them to help care for Geraldine. By fall of 1949, Beryl discovered that she was pregnant again. She did not want to bring another baby into her life, with no means to care for it. Beryl was determined to have an abortion, although it was illegal at the time. She stressed her concerns to the Christies. In November, Christie approached Beryl and told her that with his medical background, he had performed a number of successful abortions and offered his services to her. She discussed this possibility with Timothy, but he refused. He didn't think what the big deal was having another child. On the evening of November 6th, Beryl told Timothy she was going forward with the abortion after Timothy noticed there was money missing to pay rent. They got into a verbal argument that turned to slapping. The next morning, Beryl told him again that she was going through with it, but he didn't believe her and went to work. When he arrived home later that day, he was met by John Christie in the hallway, who told Timothy to walk upstairs and he would follow him. When they got to his flat, Christie told him the bad news. The abortion didn't go as planned, and Beryl had died from septic poisoning because she had already tried several other self-abortion remedies. They went to the bedroom where Christie removed the blanket covering Beryl's body, which showed bleeding from her nose, mouth, and vagina. Timothy wanted to report it, but Christie told him not to, as it would get them both in trouble. All he tried to do was help, and with Timothy's history of drinking and domestic violence, the police would charge him with manslaughter. Christie convinced Timothy to keep quiet, and Christie would return later with a plan to cover it up. Christie and Timothy moved Beryl's body to the temporarily vacated second-floor flat, and Christie proposed that he would dispose of Beryl's body himself by dumping her body in one of the street drains, but Timothy would have to leave town to separate himself from Beryl's death. Timothy agreed and wanted to take Geraldine to his mother's. Christie convinced Timothy that that would only raise suspicions. He knew of a younger couple that would look after Geraldine for the time being, but Timothy would have to leave town, which he did on November 14th. This was the last time that Timothy Evans saw his daughter Geraldine alive. Criminal AF will be back after this quick break. You've listened to hundreds of hours of podcast episodes, and I'm sure you've thought, I would love to start my own podcast. That's how I started Criminal AF. And I can tell you firsthand that starting this podcast was one of the best decisions I have ever made. But based on my experience, it can feel overwhelming if you don't know where to begin. Well, that's where Buzzsprout comes in. Buzzsprout is by far the easiest and best way to launch a professional podcast. They will help you get your podcast off the ground and into every major podcasting platform like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and so much more. You also get a great looking podcast website audio players to embed in your personal website, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and the list keeps going. Buzzsprout publishes new blog posts, podcast episodes, and YouTube videos every week so you can learn everything you need to know to start your own podcast. To join over 100,000 other podcasters and claim your $20 Amazon gift card with a paid subscription, follow the link in the episode description. This lets Buzzsprout know that Criminal AF sent you and helps support our show. Begin your podcasting journey today with Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. At some point, Christy's dog had dug up one of the skulls in the backyard, and Christy found it laying on the ground. So he took the skull and he threw it into a bombed-out building. Now, this is 1950s, 40s, right after London, World. right after World War II, a lot of buildings fucking crumbled. Now, this skull was later found by children playing in the rubble. 
They showed police to skull it, but they made no attempts to identify it. Yeah, yeah wrong place, wrong time type of deal. Okay. I'm sure there was a lot of that yeah. at that period in, in right. London. Now, for, for Beryl Evans, uh, Christy made no attempt to abort her baby. As with the others, he gassed her until she was too weak to move, and he raped her as he strangled her to death. I've never been in this situation, but I feel like if somebody's like, hey, I have an inhaler, and they're pouring carbon monoxide, like I, w- I would have been freaked out at that point enough to fight right. back. I'm, I'm surprised. Well, he, he warns them ahead of time. Like, he not warns them, but he tells them, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is how, you know. Yeah, you're going to get dizzy. So he's like, all right, you know, I just want you to breathe this in deeply and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so he never waited until they passed out completely. He wanted them. Alive. Alive. Yeah. But week, too weak to fight back. So he wanted to watch their life slip from their eyes as, <sighs> as he's raping them. Also, too, is the whole interaction between Eileen and Christy is terrifying, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That that whole situation is creepy. Like, he just popped up out of nowhere yeah. with a cup of tea. Yep. He was like, I brought you some tea. And yeah. then stares blankly at her and just like, okay, well, yeah. uh, my husband's home soon. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, no, thank you. And he's just like staring, oh, holding yeah. the tea out still. She would have. De- he would have definitely been on my my radar. Yep. In that case, mm-hmm. she was like, uh, "Maybe you guys shouldn't live here, after all." Christy was said to have an IQ of 128, which was considerably higher than Evan's IQ of 70, and he used this to his advantage to dominate and coerce Timothy into doing things that Evans knew were wrong, but he trusted Christy. Yeah. That. I mean, you're just totally taking advantage of someone who uh, clearly has something wrong with them somewhere right. on the spectrum. Yeah learning disability yeah he would soon learn that christy was not a man to be trusted as we discuss the aftermath of beryl's murder in chapter four it is believed that on the day timothy evans left town for his aunt's house was the day that christy wrapped a necktie around baby geraldine's throat and strangled her there was construction going on in the wash house, so Christy had to leave Geraldine's body in the second floor flat with her mother. Timothy Evans returned to Notting Hill on November 23rd and asked Christy if he could see his daughter. Christy informed Timothy that it wasn't a good idea right now and to return in a couple of weeks once everything blew over. Timothy returned to his aunt's in Merthyr Tidville. Construction finished on the wash house, and Christy moved both Beryl and Geraldine's body to the wash house and placed boards left over from the construction over the bodies. On November 30th, after feeling pressure from his family, Timothy Evans went to the police, and the rest, as they say, is history. Shortly after Timothy Evans' hanging, it is reported that Christy fell into a deep depression. He lost his job after admitting in court his previous criminal convictions, and he lost 28 pounds. Christy spent three weeks in a mental hospital for observation. They wanted him to stay longer, but he refused. Upon his release, Christy found another job as a clerk, and things for him began to improve. But for reasons unknown, he abruptly quit. He had other things he wanted to do. With Ethel refusing to visit relatives and her constant taunting of his impotence, Christy increasingly grew angered. By December 14th, 1952, Ethel mysteriously disappeared. Christy told neighbors that she was visiting family. He told her family that Ethel was sick and in bed. The truth is, Christy strangled Ethel and placed her body underneath the floorboards in their parlor. Christy kept sending letters and gifts to her family saying that Ethel's arthritis made it impossible for her to write the letters herself. Christy was now free to do as he pleased. Between January 19th and March 6th of 1953, Christy murdered three more women. Kathleen Maloney, 26, a local prostitute from Ladbroke Grove. Rita Nelson, 25, who was in town from Belfast visiting her sister and who was six months pregnant at the time of her death. And Hectorina McLennan, 26, who was living in London with her boyfriend, Alex Baker. Hectorina and Alex actually stayed with Christy for a short time while they were looking for their own place to live. It would meet them both at the cafe several times after that. After Hectorina's disappearance, Christy still met with Alex to inquire if he had heard any news. On March 20th, 1953, 
Christie fraudulently subletted his flat to a couple who paid him three months in advance. Christie grabbed a suitcase and left. Later that day, the landlord arrived and saw these strangers in Christie's flat and forced them to leave. Christie stayed in a hotel the next few days until March 24th, when neighbor Beresford Brown made the tragic discovery. Christie wandered the streets of London, unsure of what he was going to do. On March 28th, a police officer noticed Christie near the embankment of Putney Bridge and arrested him. Among the things found by police during a search of his person, a newspaper clipping about the arrest of Timothy Evans. When Timothy went to the police on November 30th, uh, his confession was based on what Christie had told him without actually saying it was Christie who did it in order to protect him, you know. They had this agreement, or Christie couldn't, you know, coerced Evans into, you know, accepting that. Now, Christie had told Evans that he would dispose of Beryl in the drain in front of the house, so that's what Evans told them. Mm-hmm. So when they couldn't find Beryl, he changed the story to the actual true version of events. The truth. But they didn't believe him, which then led to the authorities' version of him confessing to the full crime. And I use confessing extremely lightly. Because, as we discussed, Timothy was unable to read or write. Now, after the discovery of the six bodies at Rillington Place, four of them were brought to be autopsied, because two of them were skeletons. And the results were as follows. There was a brunette, age 20, later to be determined as age 26, had been brought dead around four weeks. She had died from strangulation and carbon monoxide poisoning. It was surmised that she had been under the effects of the poisoning when she was strangled with a smooth surface type of cord. She had been sexually assaulted at the time of death or shortly thereafter. Scratch marks on her back indicated that she had been dragged across the floor after she died. Victim number two was around 25 years old with light brown hair, poorly manicured hands and feet, and healthy. She was pinkish in color, a sign of gas poisoning and had been asphyxiated by strangulation. She also had sexual intercourse near the time of death and had been drinking heavily that day. She wore a cotton cardigan and vest, and another white vest had been placed between her legs in a diaper-like fashion. She had died 8 to 12 weeks earlier. There was a blonde, around 25 years old, poorly manicured. She wore a dress, petticoat, bra, cardigan, two vests, with a piece of material placed between her legs. She was pinkish in color and had been gassed and asphyxiated. She had been drinking shortly before death, which had taken place 8 to 12 weeks earlier. She was also 6 months pregnant. The fourth body brought to the mortuary was of a much older woman in her 50s, plump and with several teeth missing. She had been rolled up in a flannel blanket, her head covered with a pillowcase, a silk nightgown and a flowered dress were wrapped around her under the blanket. She wore stockings pulled up. She had been dead 12 to 15 weeks. Unlike the others, there were no signs of coal gas poisoning or sexual intercourse. Mm. She had been strangled, probably by a ligature. Now, the bodies were identified in order as Hectorina McLennan, Kathleen Maloney, who, I want to add, Christy placed in a chair in his kitchen, went to bed, woke up the next morning with her dead body still in the chair in the kitchen, and he had a cup of tea with her. Oh, that's, that's terrifying. Yeah, before he put her in the uh, into the nook. Uh, the third body was Rita Nelson and, of course, Ethel Christie. I, I want to say something, but I don't want to say it. Yeah, no, 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 I can't say it. I was going to say it's crazy that he didn't even want to fuck his wife. <laughs> After he killed her, like she, like that's that's that. I, I it almost feels like it's almost feels messed up. You know, yeah. you didn't you tra- you didn't even treat your own wife the same way that you tra- treated right. your other victims. Yeah. Well, you would think uh, in, in that circumstance, because prior to her being murdered, she would like ridicule him and like make fun of him because he couldn't get it up. Yeah. You know, you would think that in that instance, let me show you how. Like, I oh, can- yeah, you can't get it up now, huh? You know, but yeah. <clears throat> he didn't He didn't have sex with her. Now, let's go back to the beginning of this chapter. I yeah. hope, I pray that oh, yeah. when he strangled that baby, that he didn't act in sexual manner to yeah. that part of it. I mean, I, I'm not sure if they could tell or... Well, uh, I couldn't find anything on that. 
but all of his murders were sexual. Yeah, that's nah. So it could be it could be a case where the baby was basically in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, like what am I going to do with this baby? I just killed her mother. Yeah, maybe he just strangled her. One would hope, but it doesn't fit the mo. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of gross to think about. Yeah, that's so. So further search of the house, uh, they found potassium chloride in a can- canister with four clumps of women's pubic hair, which one clump could not be identified with any of the known victims, which leads many to believe that Christie could have more victims out there. Mm-hmm. Probably, why, why save their pubic hair? It's a memento. Uh-huh. Can't do that nowadays. Yeah. <sighs> Everyone's bald like a giant dog down there. <laughs> All right. So then they searched the backyard where they finally discovered the femur bone holding up the fence. Finally, three years later, they would have done that and they searched the place with uh, Timothy Evans. They would have yeah. been like, uh, what the hell's going on back here? So then they dug up and found two more bodies of Muriel Eady and Ruth first. Now, in the next chapter, Christy will obviously downplay the role he played in these murders. Uh, we'll discuss more in chapter five. John Christie admitted to the deaths of Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorita McLennan, stating that they were accidental. Then he admitted to the death of his wife, Ethel, once her body was discovered, saying that she overdosed on sleeping pills and he strangled her to ease her suffering. Then the skeletons in the garden were discovered, and he admitted to those murders as well. Finally, on April 27th, he confessed to the murder of Beryl Evans, but stated he had nothing to do with Geraldine's death. This could be for two reasons. One, Timothy Evans was already tried and executed for the death of Geraldine. And two, child murderers are not held in very high regard in prison. By June, Christie told authorities that the skeletons were that of Muriel Eady and Ruth First, giving closure to their families. Christie's trial began on June 22, 1953. He was only charged for the murder of his wife, but the other women were allowed to be mentioned to assist Christie's defense of insanity, who called him a maniac and a madman. However, the psychiatrist for the prosecution quickly debunked this theory, claiming that a man who was insane would not go out of his way to alter his identity as Christie did. The trial lasted only four days, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict in under an hour and a half. He was sentenced to death. On July 15, 1953, Christie was led to the gallows. His executioner was Albert Pierpoint, the same man who hanged Timothy Evans. After being restrained and a noose placed over his head, Christie complained that his nose was itching, to which Pierpoint replied, It won't bother you for long. Christie was hung and buried in an unmarked grave on prison grounds. So what would become of Timothy Evans? There was an uproar over the controversy of his trial, conviction, and death, mainly because it was Christie's testimony that led to his conviction. Prior to Christie's execution, an inquiry was made into Timothy's guilt or innocence, and it was determined that Evans was in fact the murder of Beryl and Geraldine, again based on the word of John Christie, who had changed his story and told the Inquisitor that he only confessed to Beryl's murder to aid his insanity defense. But this didn't stop the cries of injustice. Another inquiry was conducted in 1965, and it was determined that Evans, more likely than not, killed his wife but not his daughter, for which he was tried. This led to a posthumous pardon for Timothy Evans for the murder of his daughter in 1966. The murder of Beryl Evans would remain a dark cloud for decades, as neither Evans nor Christie were convicted of her death, but both believed to be the murderer. In 2003, the Home Office awarded Timothy Evans' sister, Eileen Ashby, and his half-sister, Mary Westlake, ex-Gradia payments as compensation for the miscarriage of justice. The assessor ruled that the conviction of Timothy Evans for the murder of his daughter was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice, as well as ruling that there is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans in the murder of his wife, 
stating that both murders were likely carried out by John Christie. Although a full pardon was not granted, in 2004, the Court of Appeal ruled that they did not accept the conviction of Timothy Evans for the murder of his daughter or his wife, essentially ruling that Timothy Evans was an innocent man. It's worth noting that there was another woman who Christie had his eye on, a woman named Margaret Forrest, whom he had met in the cafe and bragged about his medical expertise to. She made an appointment with Christie for treatment of her migraines, but she never showed up. Now, this... Lucky. <laughs> well, this pissed off Christie, and he flew into a rage and left his house to track her down. When he found Margaret, he insisted that she come back to his, his house immediately, which she agreed to. Christy stormed back to his house, and he waited. Again, Margaret didn't show up. Luckily for her, she lost his address. Now, you know Christy in that situation. You know, he had everything primed up. He had his yeah, gas yeah. ready. Yeah. He was all ready. Oh, yeah. Now, in, in... His whole week was ruined right there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, John Christie's initial confessions, he stated that all of the deaths were either self-defense or acts of compassion, okay? He said that uh, a couple of the girls attacked him and were, you know, whatever, so he had to fight them off. And in the case of his wife, you know, he said that she OD'd on his sleeping, sleeping pills. pills. Yeah, yeah. Great, great excuse. When in reality, he's like, all right, she needs to get out of my, my way here because I need to kill more women. So, got her out of the way. Christie would later change everything to a full confession in order to get an insanity plea. Now, while in prison, Christie met with several psychiatrists and gave them all different details regarding the murders. Now, these psychiatrists described Christie as nauseating and sniveling. <laughs> That's a word you don't hear much anymore, sniveling. Uh, he also boasted to fellow inmates that he was just as popular as the acid bath killer, George Haig who was also active around the same time as Christie. But he was much more popular. Mm -hmm. And some speculate that that's how Christie was able to continue, you know, because police were like, uh, we have other things we got to worry about. Yeah. You know what I mean? I find it interesting that for all the horrible things he did, he the one thing he tried to do to save himself at the end was lie about killing the baby. Right. You know, because, right. you know... Prison would have handled him. Oh, without a doubt. In that situation. Yeah. But, like, what a selfish act. Yeah. After doing horrible crimes to other people mm -hmm. and ruining people's lives. Yeah. And it's almost poetic that he ends up in an un unmarked jail on prison grounds, too. Yeah. So there's no reference of him or yeah. any sight. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's one noble thing that happened in all of this, it's that uh, Timothy Evans, he was exhumed from his unmarked grave at Pentonville Prison. And he was reinterred at St. Patrick's Cemetery in London. So he's no longer buried with the convicts. Mm -hmm. He's free. He's you know, peaceful. Peaceful. Yeah. Although Timothy Evans didn't get the full pardon, it is nice that they brought they opened that case back in, all the way in 2004. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the ruling was that he was innocent, man. That, yeah. At that point, nobody probably remembers him. It's a lost case, but at least they did something right in the situation. Correct. Yeah. All right, so that'll do it for this episode. If you like what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a review. And don't forget to become a criminal on Patreon. Visit patreon.com backslash criminalaf. There's five tiers, and you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. Everyone, everyone will receive early release of all of our episodes. Just visit patreon.com backslash criminalaf. Links to our Patreon, PayPal, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description. Shout out to our executive producers, Christine Rivera, Beth Davis, and Dusty J. Hicks. And thank you to Lucy out in Yass, New South Wales, for showing us this banger by Toasters and Moose, Taste the Biscuit. That'll do it for this episode of Criminal AF, signing off from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel, and take care till next time. See ya! Taste the biscuit, taste the goodness of the biscuit. Taste the honey sauce, taste the goodness of the biscuit with the honey sauce. Don't get that honey sauce on me. I don't like the way it tastes with my chicken wings. Taste the biscuit.
taste the goodness of the biscuit. Taste the butter spread. Taste the goodness of the biscuit with the butter spread. To get your butter spread all on me. I don't like the way it mixes with my mac and cheese. Cause when you're at KFC, you got that special sauce to stir my curiosity. Just give me a five-piece meal. Oh, what a deal. A big old box, it's all for me. You know I'll take coleslaw on the side. I could tell you wanted to try the potato wedges. <laughs> 